was involved in the creation of the Foresight Institute's Foresight Exchange and DARPA's FutureMap project. He invented market scoring rules like LMSR, Logarithmic Market Scoring Rule, used by prediction markets such as Consensus Point, uh, where he is also chief scientist, and he has conducted research on signaling. Today we will explore why your customers and your employees don't really know why they buy your stuff or work with you. So welcome, Robin Hanson. Great to be here, Simon. So what are you currently creating? I'm currently writing another book. Uh, it's about a very different topic about the long-term future. I did this project over the last year on something called Gravity Aliens uh, related to the great filter topic, uh, a phrase I started 20 years ago that became popular. Uh, and this is about the long-term future of humanity, the, the biggest choices we will have over the next billions of years. So that's pretty different from the elephant in the brain. Wow. So what are the, the biggest, biggest choices? So uh, right now out there, there are alien civilizations that are expanding and they probably fill roughly half the universe at the moment. Uh, but we can't see them because they're expanding near the speed of light. And so by the time you see them, they're almost here. Um, these alien civilizations appear roughly one per million galaxies and we'll meet them in roughly a billion years if we start expanding out like the rest of them. Uh, but out there, there's also a lot of other aliens who I'll call quiet. The, the ones I just talked about are loud. They expand and they fill. And if, if, they, if you could see them, they would just be obviously different. But some alien civilizations, they start out and then they stay small and they stay quiet and then maybe they go away. <laughs> and in some sense, the biggest choice we have in our future is which kind of these will we be? <laughs> will we be the kind that expands out and colonizes and changes things and competes and becomes different or will be the small kind that maybe likes each other more and controls each other more. Uh, I predict that uh, we'll have a strong world government over the next few centuries and it'll do a lot of things for us and we will like the idea that we have a world government that coordinates on lots of big issues we care about and then we'll reach the point where we have to choose whether to allow interstellar colonization. And at that point, we will know that allowing that ends the era of strong coordination and a strong community. That is, once you let things go out, they can change and they would compete. And then they could become very different from us. They would no longer coordinate. They would suffer the costs of competition and you know, war even. And if we don't like that, we might say, no, let's not let anybody go out there. Let's stay here all together with a strong central government um, dealing with all the things we've dealt with. And maybe we'll like that future better. And I think some civilizations do that, maybe even most. And that will be our biggest choice. Uh, but it's a long way off. We don't face the choice quite now. We have to face the choice when interstellar colonization becomes feasible. But it's not feasible now. And over the next few centuries, we will, in fact, have more stronger world governance. And I think we actually have pretty strong world governance now because we actually have world mobs. <laughs> that is, we have a, a large global elite of people who agree with each other a lot and talk with each other a lot. And policy around the world is actually pretty consistent across a wide range of topics because these elites talk to each other and agree. And many, maybe some of our audience are part of those elites. 
Well, the only global thing that I see going on right now is we have now a global monetary system if we accept Bitcoin as, uh, as one system. Everything else is still quite nationalized. But I'm happy to hear because it's 40 years that I'm, I'm waiting for a global global uh, governance because it makes no sense to have nation nationwide well, governance. People are, people are pretty shy about allowing like the United Nations to have strong governance. But if you look at particular policy areas, you look at electromagnetic spectrum, you look at nuclear energy, you look at pandemic policy, you look at how we regulate cars, how we regulate drugs, uh, all sorts of areas. And you look at the variation around the world, you'll see it's surprisingly small. <laughs> that is, at the beginning of the pandemic, some people like me were pushing for challenge trials. And you might think in a world of 100 nations, somebody out there would do it, but nobody did. Everybody in the world pretty much agreed about medical ethics and which things should be allowed or not. And that's why there were no exceptions anywhere. And, and that's a striking fact about our world. We actually agree worldwide on a remarkably wide range of policies. Yeah, and, uh, and we should govern it on that level. But can people kind of tend to centralize again. There is this decentralization and centralization play going on, right? And um, right. if you look at how people behave, they they go back into small groups. The they are afraid of freedom and of global uh, level decisions. Well, that's why the world mob works better than a world government. So, you know, for a million years, humans have had informal social networks and informal communities of gossip and then social sanctions. And we are very comfortable with that. And so that's kind of how it works. That is, there's only one company, only one nation in the world at the moment that really allows organ sales, Iran. Everybody else thinks organ sales, that's terrible. And there's strong social pressures for no one to allow organ sales. So Iran is facing substantial social pressures now from other medical ethics people saying, you guys got to stop that. See, there is no world government, but there is this world mob, this world community of opinion that gossips and sort of changes people's status on that basis. And that is effectively producing this very high level of global agreement on policy, even without a world government. Wow. And you have something even more shocking for us. Our own customers don't know why they buy from us. So my book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, co-authored with Kevin Simler, is about how we're just wrong about why we do lots of things. Uh, you know, we're wrong about why we go to school, about why we go to the doctor, about why we vote, why we talk, why we give to charity. Uh, we are just designed to be wrong about these things because your conscious mind, the one I'm talking to, is not the king or president or CEO of your mind, it's the press secretary. Uh, your conscious mind is designed to watch what you're doing all the time and make up a story about why that was a good thing to do and why, therefore, people shouldn't pick on you and, and accuse you of norm violations. So you don't actually know why you do most of the things you do. You What you know is a good excuse why people should leave you alone about it. And that's why you don't know what you do. Now, that works out okay. That is, most of us are designed this way and we are designed this way for a reason because it lets us sort of evade criticism of other people and, and that's important to us. But if it's especially important for you to know what's actually going on, maybe you're a salesperson or a, or a manager or a nerd like me who, who needs to think consciously through things, 
uh, then for you, it might be more important to know why are we really doing these things, even if that will make it a little harder for you to pretend otherwise when people try to accuse you of things. So uh, I might say what you really do for going to school is to uh, show that you're smart, conscientious, and conformist. You're not actually there to learn the material. You don't actually go to the doctor to get well. What you do is you go to show other people that you care and let them show they care about you. You give to charity to show other people that you're a caring, concerning person, and you're less interested in exactly the effects of your care, et cetera. So our book has 10 chapters where we go through these areas to say um, how you're wrong about why you do these things. And we could talk about CEOs and management. There's a lot of things in business that are also uh, based on hidden motives where we're not entirely honest about why we're doing what we're doing. And maybe you would like to talk about those. Yes. Listening right now are many small business owners and, uh, and they go like, what, what, what? My people don't know what they do. Tell me more. So one interesting question is what is the fundamental role of a manager in, in a business? What is it they're supposed to be doing exactly? So uh, in all of these other chapters in our book, we start out with the story people give. Like you go to school to learn the material or you'll go to the doctor to get healthy. And then we find a bunch of puzzles that don't fit so well with that. And then we offer an alternative explanation. So if we might ask about managers, well, what is kind of the puzzles that don't make that much sense out of managers? And you might think, for example, well, they tend to be tall. <laughs> they tend to be articulate. Um, well, you know, how is that important for their managing? And I think a, a key thing that's going on in modern workplaces is that humans forever had a norm against dominance. So there's two kinds of status. There's being higher status because you are powerful. That is, you can threaten people and you have uh, things you can hold over them or being high status because you're prestigious because you're respected. And we treat people who have prestige or status differently. So if somebody's dominant, I'm sorry, dominance or status, prestige differently, if somebody's dominant, then if they look at you, you should look away because looking back at them is sort of challenging their power. But if they're prestigious, it's fine to look at them because they're the people we all want to admire and stare at. It's fine to follow a prestigious person and, and try to copy them and admire them because uh, that's a human ideal. But a dominant person, somebody who is threatening you and, and has the ability to hurt you, uh, that's illicit in the ancient human tradition. Uh, now, Modern bosses are dominant, literally. They have power over you. And to the ancient human nature, that's bad. That is, you're not supposed to allow people to dominate you and you're supposed to coordinate to resist dominance. And most everyone in their first reaction about bosses is bosses are bad, right? Most fictional depiction of bosses show them as, as, as bad and to be resisted, right? And so, a key problem, a feature of the modern workplace is we have bosses. And according to the ancient human norms, we're not supposed to have bosses. We're, we're supposed to resist bosses. So how do we make it work? How do we actually show up for work and do what our bosses say and, and get along with everyone? Well, I think the solution we've used is to try to see our bosses as prestigious, not dominant. So uh, you know, for example, if you ask most people about politicians, they say they're corrupt. But if you ask them about their politician, they say, oh, well, he's fine. <laughs> um, and so I think a role that managers have in modern organizations is to be prestigious, 
instead of dominant. To get people the excuse that they're going along with what this person says because they admire them and they respect them rather than because they have power over us. And so mm -hmm. a role that CEOs have is to fill that role of being prestigious, which is why we tend to hire articulate, tall, handsome, energetic people to be CEOs because that gives the workers an excuse to obey them. And that's what why somebody are so right, right now. What if somebody Again. listening right now goes, oh, oh, I am on the dominant side, but I want to get more on the prestigious side. What can they do? Well, so we have a lot of standard signs of prestige that we use of, of who we consider prestigious. So uh, certainly being smart, being articulate, being tall, being handsome, full of energy, health, but also sort of being kind, considerate, aware, uh, you know, you're aware of world events, you, you sort of see, you know, what other people are interested in. It's just all the different ways we consider someone high status and deservingly so is prestigious. So if you want to be prestigious, you have to ask what do the people around you respect and you have to be some of that. And of course, you're also trying to avoid seeming too dominant. So, you know, in, in if you read about ancient workplaces, bosses were quite willing to like yell at people and hit people and, hey, tell them you got to do this and make big threats. And modern bosses tend to really try to avoid that. Uh, even when they give a direct order, it's often an indirect language of, you know, it would be nice if, you know, uh, I sure wish this would happen, things like that, because they're reluctant to give very direct orders. And that means they also don't give very direct threats about somebody being fired, right? They might give indirect hints that some one sort of thing might, you know, look better and, and be more respected. But behind the scenes, there is this implicit threat that if things go bad enough, you'll be fired. But people are very reluctant to even hint at such things. And they're actually quite reluctant to fire people. That is, a boss who fires some other people looks more dominant in the eyes of, of the other employees who remain. And that's also a problem. Which, which chapter of the book was most fun for you to write? Well, it's probably the chapter on health and medicine, because that's the most surprising and shocking to most people in our society. Uh, I, I expect that the phrase I gave a little earlier saying we don't go to the doctor to get well was pretty shocking and surprising to most people. And in fact, you don't actually believe me yet. So I have to give you a little evidence like I, I did in the, in the book. So the, the strongest, clearest piece of evidence is that there's almost no correlation between health and medicine. First, when we look at geographic regions, like where they consume more medicine, like say Florida compared to Minnesota, where they consume less, we look about all these geographic regions and we say, which of them are healthier? And then we say, which of them consume our medicine? There's basically no correlation, but you might think, okay, correlation isn't causation, but we have lab, ex we have actual experiments. We have randomized experiments where we took some people and we basically gave them more access to medicine. We lowered the price and then they chose more medicine. And then we could look at whether the people on who on average chose more medicine were healthier and it turns out they were not. Uh, and we have a whole bunch of randomized experiments now. A most recent one this last year just reported out of India uh, where they had, you know, I think 60,000, 80,000 people randomly assigned to more versus less medicine and the ones who got more medicine were not healthier. So that should be shocking to you. 
Uh, but it's evidence suggesting that the reason why we go get medicine and go to the doctor is not primarily to get well, it's to show that we care. So the idea is for our distant ancestors, when they got sick or injured, it was important to have people around them who would you know, help them during the interim, like bring them food, protect them from predators. And it was a time also when if you were gonna dump someone, that's a good time to do it. <laughs> They're helpless and can't retaliate very much. So as soon as you got sick or injured, you wondered, am I supposed friends actually gonna be my friends and stick with me or are they gonna dump me now? And so when they didn't dump you, when they came to your aid, they brought you food, they protected you, they kept you warm, kept you company, that sort of made deep tears in our eyes, hearts swell up, throats crack, because look, they're showing they care about you. And that's a reaction people want to get out of you. They want you to know that they really do care about you and they're really gonna stick with you. And so that became associated with caring about people when they were sick or injured uh, from you know a million years ago. And we've kept that all through history. And today we show people they care via you know, health and medicine. And so this is why people like to have medicine provided by a community, by their nation or their city or their firm. And organizations like you know employers have often been eager to gain this sense of loyalty and attachment by giving medicine to their members and saying, look, we do care. And that's very effective at making people feel that they are cared for. And that's its purpose. Wow. Even if it's not working. Even if it doesn't help your health. So, so an analogy here is Valentine's chocolate. So we, we have a tradition on Valentine's of giving someone, you know, chocolate, right? Now, when we decide how much chocolate to buy, we don't ask how hungry they are. We're not picking the quantity of chocolate based on their nutritional need for chocolate, right? We're, what we are instead trying to do is buy enough to show that we care, that we care more than somebody who wouldn't be willing to buy as much. And when we're picking the quality of the chocolate, what we mainly care about is shared signals of quality. That is, uh, I, if I think one kind of chocolate is actually the best, but I don't think you know that, then I'm going to get you the kind that will be seen by you and everyone as the quality chocolate so that we can all get credit for my generosity and your gratitude. And if on Valentine's I don't have someone to give me chocolate, I might buy myself some chocolate and leave it on the desk at work because I want to be seen as somebody who's cared for in the same way that everyone else is cared for. And so similarly with medicine, we don't actually care very much about private signals about the quality of medicine. We want the same sort of medicine everyone gets, even if we have to pay for it ourselves. And we choose the quantity of medicine based on how much caring we're trying to show and which is much more quantity than we need. That is, we could plausibly cut the amount of medicine in half and still be basically just as healthy, but we wow. would then be more concerned that we're not showing that we care. Elephant in the brain, everybody. Get this book if you want to look at things in a different way and find find some different angles on our reality that maybe we are not seeing right now. And Robin, when everybody zigs, this person is zagging, but from your perspective, they are doing the right thing. Who do you pick? I pick my colleague, Brian Kaplan. He's across the hall here. So I'm not an independent observer here, but 
uh, he does what a good intellectual should. That is, instead of jumping along with whatever the fashion of the day is or trying to show how impressive he is with complicated techniques, he asks what are the most important questions that are neglected, and then he tries to address them directly and, uh, you know, and keeps it simple. And honestly, he does a better job of that than I do. <laughs> I can also be tempted by a little more complicated things that are more impressive rather than keeping it simple and keeping it straight. Super cool. And three books that inspired you. Well, um, fiction or nonfiction would, I guess, be the first question to wonder. So I, I was inspired, for example, in college by reading The Lord of the Rings because uh, that was a whole different world. Or even when I was a very young child, uh, The White Mountains was the science, my first science fiction novel. And that sort of made a big impression on me. But if we're thinking nonfiction, um, at the moment, I'm reading The Presentation of the Self in Everyday Life by Irvin Groffman from 1956. And it's an excellent book in the line of my book, The Elephant in the Brain, about all the ways in which we aren't fully honest with ourselves or others about what we're doing. That is, we manage a, an image. And it's a very detailed, very thoughtful analysis of all the different ways that we attend to our image and manage it. Uh, and it's, even after all these years, an excellent source, which I'm reading again. Um, Geoffrey Miller's The Mating Mind was an influential book that I read, you know, a little over two decades ago because it showed me all the possibilities for seeing more hidden motives that I hadn't been thinking about. And, uh, and that helped me, encouraged me to go on beyond and consider lots of different kinds of hidden motives in other areas of life. Um, long time ago, Herbert Simon won the Nobel Prize in economics, but he wasn't an economist and his most famous book was called The Sciences of the Artificial. And it tried to you know, integrate a lot of different perspectives in this general idea of artificial systems. And it was an amazing contribution and influenced me a lot at the time. And the reason why people don't talk about it as much anymore is because we all assimilated it. So in fact, the, you know, the, the highest praise you could make about an intellectual is that they had an insight that was surprising at the time. And then everybody changed their mind and came to believe it and see it that way. And then later on, it's like, how could anybody have ever thought of anything different? Uh, and, you know, so that was a, a book that was true that way. And that means it's less perhaps interesting to read now because we have assimilated that. But uh, that's the kind of thing I aspire to be and to do is to have an insight that people are surprised about. They say, no, that can't be right. And then you persuade them so well, it gets subsumed among what everybody just thinks is obvious. What's your next book? Well, that's what I was telling you about the aliens. <laughs> Although I also have a book in mind about um, radical social changes possible. So um, as you mentioned in your intro, I, I do a lot of on prediction markets, betting markets. And I think there's enormous potential for betting markets in most organizations to forecast things like sales, to advise key decisions. And this idea of a book is about a larger class of related mechanisms. And the key idea is to pay for results. So. In a lot of our main social relationships with other people like lawyers or doctors or politicians or even police, we uh, trust them a lot. And I think too much. <laughs> we basically assign them a task and we pay them to do it. And then whatever they do, we kind of accept because we don't have a good way to judge whether it's good or not. We just go along. And so we often use social status 
as a means to decide who should do what. We say, well, okay, I guess if you're a doctor from a top school, I guess that must be good along. You can be my doctor and whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. And I don't really know if you're doing a good job. And, you know, for businesses, they're much more careful to, you know, check their suppliers to see whether they're doing a good job and maybe swap them out. But us ordinary people, the big people in our lives that we hire, we don't actually check on them very well. We just kind of trust them largely on the basis of status or regulation saying, well, regulators approve this, I guess they must be good. And we could instead pay for results. That is, we could instead say merge health and life insurance, say for medicine. That is, uh, your health insurance is who pays for your medicine. Your life insurance is someone who pays a lot of money if things go really bad for you, like you die. If you merge those together, now the person who's paying for your health insurance might not want you to die. And then they might make better trade-offs about what treatments to give you or not. Uh, and if you bought disability insurance and pain insurance along with life insurance and crank them up to high enough levels, you might make your health insurer just basically share your interests, feel your pain because the things that are bad for you would be bad for them. And now you can trust them more to make good choices. And this principle can be applied in uh, forecasting, which is what prediction markets are about. That is people who forecast, you give them an incentive to be accurate, and then you can trust the forecast there better rather than just hiring on the basis of a degree or some sort of uh, prestige or regulation. And similarly in other areas like criminal law, we could actually go much more in the direction of paying for results instead of just trusting people to make a lot of choices for us. And everybody listening right now has, as a CEO, the responsibility to create systems according to these principles. So even without having the time to study the whole models behind it, but everybody's doing it right now in, in a more intuitive fashion. But everybody's thinking, okay, how should the weekly reports be? How should the roles be? Because... I, I have to incentivize that marketing and sales and operations work together instead of apart or even against each other. And, and there are many structural moments, the, the reports, the payments, the communication systems, the decision-making systems, etc. And so all these things are super relevant right now for everybody listening. Um, it's just sometimes they are so, so much caught in in the weeds, in the business, that they don't have the time to study the models? Where can, can you point them to? Well, uh, I'm an economics professor, so there's a vast literature in economics. And of course, many of us economists are happy to consult on these things. Uh, but just in this sort of conversation, I can just point you to some large themes. It, it does seem like in a lot of contexts, people are you know, satisfied with just sort of the appearance of a process that set, deals with the problem. And they're not so interested in whether there's good incentives. So even in forecasting, many organizations have a, a forecasting branch, but they don't actually look at the forecast that much. They don't use them. They just feel like they should have some forecasting. <laughs> uh, and, and many kinds of procedures that organizations adopt, they pile on rules and procedures. Often, every time something goes wrong, people say, ah, well, now we need a new procedure <laughs> to deal with the thing that went wrong. And It's not necessarily that the new pile of procedures is actually on average better. It might be on average worse, but it addresses the problem. So people have a strong habit, unfortunately, of trying to just add on some visible change in procedures or process to address a problem without thinking through sort of what the fundamental incentives really are. What's next for you? What, what 
what happens in the next three years? Well, hopefully I write one or two of these books I'm talking about and I continue to think about things. So I'm lucky to be a tenured professor and I like to use a lot of the freedom I'm given by being a tenured professor to just ask what are the most important neglected questions and try to think about them. So you might think a lot of people would be doing that, but you'd be wrong. So most people in my position of a tenured professor, they are have bought into sort of a, a status game that we have about you know, who's most prestigious, publishing in what journals, getting what grants, what positions. And they are playing that game, even though they kind of know that the things that are happening are, aren't that important. That the things that get the most prestige as a publication aren't the most important questions we should be addressing. They are just the easiest to get prestige on. Uh, but they're playing that game. And of course, everybody's out there has to play some game, you know, depending on what their environment is and, and what they'll get fired if they don't do. But some of us have freedom to to think about more things than most people do. And we should, some of us at least should be using that freedom to think about big basic questions. So, I mean, I might ask you, what is the most interesting puzzle that you are aware of, like, that I could, I could ponder? That is, I, I want to look at what other people are finding as interesting phenomena or puzzles. And I want to integrate that into my set of puzzles I'm trying to grasp. Because one of the, my main theoretical mechanisms is to try to find an explanation for several puzzles at once. It's, it's dangerous to sort of take any one puzzle and just make an ad hoc explanation for it one at a time. Because it's too easy to just make up ad hoc explanations for each puzzle. So the, the way to have discipline is to collect a half dozen puzzles and that, that are related and say, okay, how can I explain these all at once together with the smallest set of assumptions? And so that's why I would come to someone like you and say, tell me a puzzle. Tell me something that doesn't quite make sense in your world. And I can add that to my set of puzzles to explain. Oh, that's beautiful. I give you a puzzle. Uh, why is love empowered versus non-empowered in some places? Love empowered. Love empowered versus disempowered. You don't have to solve it now. Add it to your list. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I want, but, I, but what does it mean for love to be empowered? That is a place where love is allowed, where love is encouraged, as opposed to a place where love is discouraged and, and empowered. Shunned. Empowered. It, it gets more budget, more power, and more uh, influence. Real power. Somebody well, who is caring more gets more yes. budget, more influence. So. I mean, one simple, so again, for everything, you, you start with a simple theory and then ask what's going wrong with it. So the simplest theory might be, well, when people are worried about betrayal and disloyalty, then they're willing to allow more budget for signs of the opposite, right? If, if, you, are, if you think if we all stick together and, and you know, root for each other and work for each other, then we can accomplish great things. But there's temptations some of us have to sort of, you know, go on their own and achieve their own personal ends at the expense of what we are doing here together. Then you might worry about them taking on that temptation and you might therefore want to offer them love, offer them a community of, of strongly bonded people who are willing to pay large costs to show that they are bonded to each other and convince each other that they are bonded so that they would stay together and not fragment along the lines they could to be tempted to fragment. So you say, well, where is there not love? It's where people aren't so afraid of that. 
So think of a, a situation where it's all very bureaucratic and there's procedures you follow. And as long as you follow the procedures, you're safe because uh, nobody can complain about you not following the procedures correctly. Well, now you don't really need to show loyalty so much. You don't really need to be bonded so much. You don't need love. You just need to do your job according to the procedures, right? And so that's the kind of world where people aren't so into love, right? Or there isn't a budget for love. They are doing their job. Robin Henson, everybody. Elephant in the brain, available wherever you buy books. And Robin, where do you hang out? Where can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter, at Robin Hanson. I'm, uh, you know, here in Fairfax, Virginia, if anybody's nearby. And I'm available for conversations like this. I've enjoyed this. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your, your wisdom, your models with us. And who should be my next guest? Brian Kaplan. Perfect. Perfect. Please introduce me to him. You don't have it very far. And, uh, right. and thank you for being here. And please let me know when your next book is up. Then we talk aliens. All right. <laughs> thank you, Robin. Keep rolling.